Welcome to the Truth and Grace Counseling Podcast. Truth and Grace Counseling exists to provide clarity from a biblically informed perspective in order to help individuals engage life faithfully. Let's go. Hello and welcome to episode five of the Truth and Grace Counseling Podcast. On today's episode, I chastise all of you audio-only listeners. How dare you not see my new merch that's in the background? You better get on video. (laughs) I also discuss some new books, um, some recommendations. One serious, one not so serious, but the serious one really I, I highly, highly, highly recommend. In the meat section, I talk with with Vanessa, who has one of the, no, 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 the coolest counseling stories that I have heard. Um, You're really going to enjoy her story. In the last word segment, I talk about prayer. No secret here. The word is prayer and why we need to do a better job as Christians incorporating it into our life. I'll meet you at the water cooler. The water cooler. Hello and welcome to the water cooler. So today I've got some cool show and tell. If you're on audio only, then bear with me. You can't see it, but hey, why don't you check the audio or sorry, check the video. It's pretty cool. There's some some neat things that you can't see if you're on audio only. Anyways, to start with my shirt. So (laughs) this is a shirt that I uh, bought a couple years back. Um, as some of you have seen in, in previous podcasts, um, again, audio, you can't see it, but um, back here is my uh, my ruby uh, crochet doll, whatever you want to call it, um, that my, my sister made me. I have a Chesapeake Bay Retriever, and that, if you don't know what that is, that's a dog. And this shirt, I don't know how well this is picking up in, on the camera, but um, it says like a lab, but better. My uh, mom does not appreciate this shirt because she... Um, loves Labrador Retrievers. They've had labs for years and years. And don't get me wrong, this is it's a joke, but um, labs are great dogs. But Chesapeake Bay Retrievers are kind of like Labrador Retrievers. They're similar size. They're duck hunting dogs, you know, go, go in the water, retrieve. They in physical appearance, the big difference is they have curlier hair, they got a curlier coat. A lot of people, particularly when uh, Ruby was a puppy, they assumed she was a chocolate lab because she has a, um, you know, kind of a dark chocolatey type of dark brown type of coat. But um, yeah, she's she's curlier and personality difference is really the biggest thing um, aside from physical because labs, they tend to just be happy-go-lucky, never met a stranger, just really, really nice dogs. That's why they're the most popular breed. And Chesapeake's, it's not like they are super angry. Like when when neighbors come up to to my dog, then she'll let them pet her and and everything. But they're a little bit more standoffish, uh, way more stubborn. My, My dog is incredibly stubborn. But on the good side... She makes a way better protection dog than than what my parents' dogs do. So uh, my my dog Ruby, she there's actually some people and they weren't in our yard, but there's a, there's a, like a alleyway back behind our house, and there's kids just running around back there. They weren't doing anything bad, but Ruby let them know, hey, don't get near my property. So um, I appreciate that about her. She she tries to keep keep our property safe. So anyways, if, if you're interested in uh, 
knowing more about uh, Chesapeake Bay Retrievers. I, I, I don't know what the link is yet, but I'll throw a link down there because I, I love the breed. Other show and tell. Um, I have got a couple books here. First book, this is going to be the more serious of the two books that I have show for, or for show and tell. This first one is called Praying the Bible. It's by Donald S. Whitney. This is a fantastic little book. It's only 89 pages as far as the actual reading of it. There's more um, in the appendix in the back. Very, very helpful for those of you that are listening that are Christian, which I know um, this is a Christian-based uh, counseling practice, so most of you probably are Christian. But if you are struggling with incorporating prayer into your daily routine or, or just struggling with that discipline, and, and I'm not pointing fingers at you, I'm pointing fingers at, at me that I struggle with this. Oftentimes, you start with good intentions and, hey, I'm going to pray about XYZ and you kind of get lost, your thoughts go, go off, and, and, and you just don't have good structure. That's where this book is so incredibly helpful. And I've got this in my my good stuff section of, of the website, truthgracecounselingpodcast.com. But honestly, I'm not a good salesman, but honestly, you don't have to buy this book. Um, the, the biggest takeaway from this is instead of just using your mind and, and where your, your mind kind of takes you as the source of your prayer, it says to use the Psalms. So in fact... Feel free to, to pause this podcast and go give this a try. Read through Psalm 1. It's a pretty short psalm. And the instruction is basically read those verses. And if things come to your mind to pray about, then pray about it. If that verse or that chapter, if anything doesn't come to mind, then keep going. But what's so powerful about it is you're going to pray about similar things that you would have prayed about anyways, but it gives you biblical wisdom and biblical language to use as the basis um, of those prayers. And the book does a good job of trying to segregate using the Psalms and, and, and Scripture as a prayer source and as a study source, because when you're studying it, you don't want to inject yourself into into the word because you you might be misinterpreting some things but as a prayer source you're just using biblical wisdom biblical verbiage for your prayers it it really i i try not to be too hyperbolic but it's life-changing in that sense of, of changing your your prayer routine because you will never again run out of things to say in, in your prayer life it it's incredible so Highly, highly, highly recommend not just this book, but praying through the Psalms, praying through Scripture, using that as your basis for your prayer life. I guarantee you it will change. If you're a Christian, it will change the spiritual discipline of prayer in your life. Absolutely. Second book. This one I got for my birthday. As I mentioned in the last uh, podcast, I had a birthday recently. This is not nearly as serious. <laughs> this, this is more of a for fun type of book. Um, I'm a big fan of the Babylon Bee. Um, I, I use them as just a kind of an antidote to the craziness of the world. And th this is kind of a side here. Often those on the right, as I have said, I have been pretty open about being conservative leaning. So often we hear these news stories, what the president has said recently or whatever, and we're like, oh my gosh, the world is, is, is awful, we're, we're all going to die, it's terrible, and don't, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of truth in that. 
But what leads from that type of mindset is just inaction, feeling depressed, feeling down. And that's what I like about the Babylon Bee is they're still pointing out, yeah, there's bad stuff. Uh, and, and their kind of sister side or whatever they call it, not the B, points out a lot of these real stories going on. And, and they're serious. I, I'm, I'm not saying to just not pay attention to what's going on in the world. But what I like about the Babylon B in general is they kind of poke fun at stuff. So they're giving social commentary, but still having fun while doing it. So I just really appreciate that. Sometimes we need to not be so serious, like, like the Joker. Why, why, why so serious, right? Sometimes just having a little bit of fun and that keeps you invigorated. It, it keeps you going um, by seeing kind of the silliness of life instead of just being down and, and, and depressed all the time. So that huge, long-winded introduction aside, this book, as you can see, again, audio, what are you doing? You can't see it, is The Babylon Bee Guide to Democracy. And in the kind of subtitle there, How to Flawlessly Rig Elections, Bribe Any Politician, and Crush Your Political Enemies for Good. It's, this is, as you can tell from the title, very tongue-in-cheek, just kind of silly. I'll just kind of thumb through just a quick page. You, you can see there's just all sorts of illustrations. I mean, goodness, I just pulled it, and that's a that's a picture of Judge Judy. So we're, we're not looking for serious uh, political commentary. It'll have little uh, charts and things like that. Anyways, just really witty. It's kind of a, a a funny type of social commentary on our political system. But, um, anyways, worth worth your time. I'll include a include a link down down there as well. And in fact, you know, I don't even have this up yet, but I'll include this in the good stuff section of the website just because I think we need more humor. Cr Christians, conservatives, again, we there are serious things, and and I want us to address serious things, but. My guest today, Vanessa, she talks about very serious issues that she's gone through in her life, but we don't want to just stay there and stay in the serious mode and not ever have any any fun. So this is fun. Don't don't take this as a serious political commentary. It's just some goofs, some laughs. So worth your time. Last thing I'll add, and this is another thing. Gosh, audio people, what are you doing? Come on. Come on, look at the, the visual. It's, it, there's some cool stuff back there. <laughs> uh, is As you can see in the background, this is kind of my new setup. Um, got my, my merch back there. And um, as I said before, you got, got Ruby hanging out back there. Um, again, all of this merch is located on my website, truthgracecounselingpodcast.com. Um, coffee mug, new tumbler. Um, got a little coaster there. I, I, I really want to be adding some new items along the way as well, but really showing support for the show by by purchasing some of those items or going on, on good stuff, um, getting some of those uh, affiliate links. I also have some pretty cool software, um, trials, things like that on there. There's are all things that I use personally. So yeah, I, I get a kickback from these items. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm upfront about that, but Everything I have in the good stuff section, I either own, uh, I'm using, or I really believe in in the the content that that I'm putting on there. So it's not just me throwing stuff out there, shilling for money, um, being the new Christian conservative uh, grifter out there. Uh, sure, I'm asking for some support there, but these really are items that I believe in. So, anyways, give that a look. And I will go ahead and meet you at the meat section. I got a pretty cool interview today. The meat section. 
today we have a special guest. Uh, we have Vanessa Londino. Uh, she grew up in New Jersey and attended the Tisch School of the Arts of, at New York University. She majored in music and theater. She later moved to Tennessee and attended Trevecca Nazarene University, where she received a master's in counseling. She has been in private practice for six years, practicing for 12 years total. Her specializations include identity issues, healing from spiritual abuse, and the integration of the holistic self. So Vanessa, it's great to have you on today. Thank you. Good to be here. Great. So uh, I include this with everybody. We, we kind of have a, uh, it's a serious podcast, but still a little lighthearted. And I, I named this the the meat section just because it's yeah. the main part of the, the podcast. So starting with that, I ask all my guests, what what's your favorite kind of meat? I like a bone-in ribeye, medium. All right. Just yep. straight medium, no medium rare, medium or well done, just right down the middle. Not well done. That's a hockey puck. Um, no, <laughs> I can't do it. I, um, you know, I grew up eating medium rare meat and somewhere around middle age, I just had to nudge it up to medium. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Uh, I, I'm definitely. I'm definitely a medium rare guy myself, um, but I can respect medium. I'm with you. Once you get to well done, uh, I, no. I can be friends with you, I guess, but not not yeah. on your meat selection. Yeah, I probably can't be friends with you in that case. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So we are both uh, licensed professional counselors, right? I, I was pretty sure I was trying to to remember because I, I have other counselor friends that are social workers or whatever, but um Tell me your journey. We all have a, a counseling journey that what what led us here. So tell me what led to you being a professional counselor. Yeah, um, I remember being in graduate school and a guest lecturer came to one of our classes and said, you know, no child grows up and says, I want to be a therapist. Like all therapists have stories, you know. Um, so mine is similar to a lot of therapists. I think I grew up in a really dysfunctional family. And we were sort of long on love and short on emotional maturity. My parents were, um, I think, overwhelmed. There were a lot of kids. Uh, I'm the fourth of four. So my mother was an immigrant from Colombia, South America. And my dad was second generation Italian. And, you know, survival was the name of the game. They didn't really have an understanding of emotional health. They certainly didn't know that you're supposed to feel your feelings and express them emotionally. So in my family... Um, feelings were felt and then acted out. So it was, you know, Colombian and Italian. There's a lot of hot blood. There was a lot of explosive fights. There was a lot of screaming. And both of my parents had trauma on both sides of their family that they unknowingly, certainly unintentionally passed down. They passed down their trauma. They passed down their coping mechanisms. I think they did better than their parents, but there was no healing. There was no understanding of mental health. So I grew up in survival mode. Um, I had every kind of emotional PTSD. I had some physical PTSD from physical abuse. So, you know, it's, it's just that dysfunctional family system. I was the youngest child. So I played the mascot role um, with my mom. Well, with my whole family, I think I was in a lot of ways, my mother's hero. I was like her trophy child and I was my dad's scapegoat. So a lot of yelling, a lot of blaming, um, a lot of getting out his frustration. And I think just being overwhelmed with the family onto me. And they sort of created the system that wound up overwhelming them <laughs> unknowingly again. And so I grew up and sort of adopted those roles. You know, I understood that my value came from my performance. 
And I was really hard on myself, which is the scapegoat role, but I had a ton of anger. So I go to NYU and I'm having a lot of success and I'm booking commercials and television shows and movies and I'm, you know, working off off Broadway on stage by the time I'm a senior. So I'm doing really well, but there's this double life that I'm living on the outside. I'm this, you know, sort of shining star of a performer and on the inside, I'm deeply insecure. Um, I lied just as easily as I could tell the truth back in those days. So I joined a campus ministry. Um, I grew up Adventist, Seventh-day Adventist, if you're familiar with that tradition. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. lots of rules, lots of structure. And I think that worked really well for my parents. I think they wanted rules and structure, um, but I didn't remember, and I still don't remember ever growing up learning that God loved me. Um, I knew that God was watching me, and I knew that God had standards and expectations of holiness, <laughs> you know, just keeping it light, you know, for a seven-year-old, that was kind of intense. Um, but I didn't know that, like, I was loved. That wasn't part of the theology that I was taught. I was taught that you owe God this obedience. So I go to NYU, and my first year, I basically went hog wild. I don't think I went to church maybe maybe one time my, my freshman year, but I got, you know, drunk every weekend. And, you know, I'm living in Manhattan, and I'm 17 years old. So use your imagination. Um, and then the beginning of my sophomore year, I'm feeling really guilty. I'm like, oh God, I don't want to, I don't want to spend another year like that. So right around that time, I got invited to this Bible study in my dorm room. And so I go to that and I join this campus ministry and long story short, it turns out to be like a Christian cult. So I just, my spiritual formation is disastrous at this point. Like I don't have any experience of grace. I don't have any experience of like calm really i mean all of my spiritual and this is sort of it come goes hand in hand so i leave that church i remember i walked out into union square park which is right at uh, 14th street and kind of a block away from fifth avenue in new york and i remember just walking outside of my dorm i was about 20 well i might have been a little bit older because i was not living in the dorm at that time i was i was in my early 20s and i put my hand up like to heaven and said leave me alone do not come after me i'm done and I was done and I stopped going to church and I started reading all of the atheists of that time, like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris. And like, I'm flooding my mind with there is no God. And of course there's no God and it's starting to make sense, except that Dawkins really doesn't make sense. It's logically really <laughs> flawed. That book is really logically flawed, but you know, I'm, 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 I'm still searching for truth. I moved to Europe. I was in the cast of West Side Story, the European tour. I'm playing Maria. So I'm like living this dream role and I'm reading Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. And right around that time, I made a phone call to a therapist because I was in a pretty dark place. Again, there was an inner and an outer Vanessa. The outer Vanessa was like the starry-eyed performer and the inner Vanessa was tormented. So I left a message on this therapist's voicemail and I said, um, you know, hello, my name is Vanessa Landino and I need someone to call me back. I'm afraid I'm going to hurt myself. And she called me back within hours and she said, why don't you come in today? And that was the beginning of therapy for me. So I went and saw Mary Coonan in New York City. I, I want to send this to her if she's still around. Um, and she was the first person in my life ever who showed me compassion. Wow. Um, and she was the first human who didn't objectify me. Um, there was a lot of narcissism in my family growing up. So there was just so much objectification. I was not a person. I was my mother's trophy. I was mm -hmm. the reason she was succeeding as a mother because I'm this bright star that's going places, you know. 
And so I go to see Mary and I think I spent the first six months in therapy just weeping, like weeping and crying probably 22, 23 years of tears at that time. And she was so patient and so kind and so comforting. And she was motherly. And, you know, I told her I'd left the faith and she was like, okay, what did you leave? I mean, she just had all these great questions. They weren't shame-based. I was allowed to explore things. And then we started talking about my family of origin and she started calling a spade a spade. And she was like, that's narcissism. That was abuse. And I remember telling her, cause you know, my mother was old school and she would whip me with a leather belt when I was, you know, disappointing or bad or whatever. And I remember telling my therapist this, and this was such a, like a seminal moment in therapy. And she said, Vanessa, that's physical abuse. And I remember I, you know, in denial, protecting the family system, which is the role of the hero child, right? I was like, no, 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 that she's just old world. It's Colombian, it's Colombian discipline. And she was like, no, that's physical abuse. And so slowly I'm starting to learn that I have rights and that I had rights. And then a lot of those rights were validated. So fast forward, I moved to Europe. We did therapy over email at that time because we didn't have Zoom and I couldn't call her. So she's giving me therapy over email, but I wanted to keep doing therapy. And so I'm searching every spiritual tradition you can imagine. I'm reading the Bhagavad Gita. I'm even reading the Quran. I'm reading Buddhism. I'm reading new age mysticism. I'm reading everything and I'm searching for truth and I can't find all of it, but I'm getting pieces of it. So I come back to the States after having broken every commandment, literally every commandment. People are like, how did you murder? I'm like, I have, I have had an abortion. Like I have broken every commandment. I've done everything I swore I'd never do. And I come back to the States and best thing you could do at this time, get married. So I got married and that was a very, very troubled marriage and it only lasted five years. But at the end of that marriage, the only thing I could describe was I began to hear a voice within me that was bigger than me. And I knew it was bigger than me. And I was so open. Like my heart was open. My mind was open. I just wasn't open to Christianity because I had taken that off the list of where truth lives. So I'm still in therapy. I'm still doing all this healing work. I'm you know, now that I look back, I'm like, oh yeah, that guy was cognitive behavioral and she was psychodynamic. You know, like I'm finally learning like what now I know what they were doing with me. But at the time, all I knew is that I was being heard right? and my pain mattered and it never mattered in my home, but it mattered now. And so I'm developing what therapists call ego strength. You know, I'm developing self-respect for the first time in my life. I'm developing self-confidence. And right around that time, I hear this voice in my head. I don't know if it was in my head. It was a sense I had within me that I was connected to something bigger. That's the best way I could put it. Mm-hmm. That my life was part of this, like the energy of the universe. And I'm connected to a bigger thing. But again, Christianity's way, like, I'm like, no, that's not what this is. And so I start you know, kind of paying attention to this sense within me that I'm connected to the larger energy. Okay. And I'm noticing that like, I'm made of the same stuff as trees and plants and flowers and animals. And like, it's all energy. It's all atoms. We're all part of this energy field. And so I'm getting into that sort of spirituality and that kind of like, Mm -hmm. you know, new age spirituality. And then at one point I was sort of like, God, is that you? And what I heard, felt, sensed, whatever was, 
it is me. It's always been me. I've always been here. Come home, Vanessa. Mm. I could cry. I mean, I was like, okay, you know, here I am. I am the woman who's lived the sinful life in that town. You know, like whenever Uh I read a woman who had lived a sinful life in that (laughs) town, that would be me. So I, at that time, I didn't believe in prayer. Christianity was off the table. I did not believe in prayer, but I was thinking, but I was kind of thinking upwardly. So I used to call this prinking. Like, I'm not praying. I'm not thinking. I'm prinking. (laughs) And so I prunked. (laughs) I pranked. I prunked. Um, Anyway, I was pranking myself, but we could go down that road. So I'm prinking. And I remember sort of like, there is a God and this is it. It's being connected to the being, the energy, the source of everything that is. And that was like the first conversion and it was very real. And it also made sense with everything I'd been studying, you know, the laws of actually the laws of physics support the existence of God. Like there is an energy field and we are all part of it. And so all of these things that I've been studying, and I was reading quantum physics at that time. I was reading for fun. I mean, it was just, it was a time of like, just light reading, you know, nothing. Um, I didn't get a lot of it, but I I was trying, you know, I I was searching. And so then I remember, um, and this all kind of goes together because this whole time I'm in therapy. And I thought when I left the church and got into therapy without realizing it consciously, I was sort of like, this is where love lives. Love lives in a therapist's office. Healing is in a therapist's office. Like I thought therapy was the safe place because no one was hurting me there. And my family wasn't safe and the church wasn't safe because I had been spiritually abused in this campus ministry and the Adventist church. I have nothing against Adventism at this time at all. I have so much gratitude for the way I was raised at this time. But then it just felt like rules. Like that's not healing. I don't need more rules. So I'm having a healing interaction in a therapist's office. And then here comes God back in my life. And then I remember saying, okay, at this point, God, I'm a deist. Like, I believe you exist, but I don't believe in Jesus. So if you're cool and I'm cool, I can live out my whole days, like all of the days of my life as a deist. I love this. I love you. You love me. I believe I'm in the love now. Who needs Jesus? You know? And, but I, I was actually asking the question. My heart was genuinely saying, if Jesus is real, you're going to have to teach me about it because I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to go back to Christianity. Not the way I knew it. And what I heard again, sensed when you're in communication with the divine, there's no, it doesn't work in the five senses all the time. But what I sensed was, um, go back to the gospels. And so I opened John, which is probably still my favorite gospel. Uh And all the old condemning voices start up in my head. Like I'm reading this and all I'm reading is you're not good enough. You're not worthy to be his follower. Jesus would never even spend one minute with you. Like all of the old condemning voices are, and I shut the Bible. I slammed it shut. And I remember this day so well, I was like, I can't do this. If I can't read this, give me new eyes. And I opened up to the same page again, the same, it was John four. It was the woman at the well who I totally relate to. Yeah. And it was like, the words were jumping off the page. Like I have never, 
I've never been able to, re- to forget that day reading the Bible. It was like I could see the spiritual truth in it. I was understanding things that I had never understood before. And that was the day that started my conversion as a follower of Jesus. I was already like on board with God, but I, again, had rejected the church and the faith. And then as I kept reading and kept reading his words over time, all of the tidbits of truth that I had found along the way in all of these other books and sources, they all contain truth. What I realized is Jesus is the culmination of them. Jesus is the holder of all of it. Like Jesus is the speaker of all truth. And I was like, how did I miss this? It's all here. It's all in one person. You know? yeah. And then connecting that as like the incarnation of God and giving us the secrets of the kingdom and the secrets of just the ways of life and the secret of who you are as a person, like all these mysteries are being revealed and then they were being revealed to me. So again, this whole time I'm in therapy, but therapy feels like the healing place. And now I'm getting converted over here. And then finally, I had dinner with a couple who were like incredibly strong Christians. And also I trusted them because they were therapists. (laughs) I had to have both. Right. And I remember her name is Sherry Tilly and she's one of the most magnificent teachers and one of the most humble humans I've ever met in my life. But I remember having dinner with them at my house in Nashville. And I told them this whole story in that, in whatever version I told them then. And I remember she said to me, Vanessa, to make me cry. She said, God will never abuse you. Mm-hmm. And like, that was the moment that I realized that I can do this and be yeah. that. And I needed that whole thing to come together before I could ever become a therapist. So that by that time, I'm in graduate school and I flew through graduate school, three class. I mean, I tripled up on my curriculum through, flew through, got licensed, opened my private practice, And a supervisor, I'll just sum up this part of the story with this. A supervisor said to me very early on in my training, he said, Vanessa, you don't sit down with therapists like you as in you, Vanessa. He's like, you you don't sit down with clients. That's not what you do. You sit down and you battle the darkness. And I would say that's true. And I would say that the reason why I do and I want to, and I'm energized and I'm called to is because I've battled it in myself in, in very real ways in a therapist's office. I mean, therapy was the safe place for me for a long time. So that's how I became a therapist. What a, what an incredible story. You know, I have, (laughs) I've asked this question, not, not just on air, um, off air with different, different counselors throughout the years. And, that uh, offhand anyways that is the the coolest story i've i've heard bar none uh, of the the counselor story and it's got a lot of elements doesn't it (laughs) what's so neat in my mind too is my my practice name truth and grace counseling like that's your journey you 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 had to you had to get truth and i think you had truth in your life when you were younger too but there was no grace Exactly. Yeah, yeah. The grace, it's not an either or concept. Mm-hmm. They have to be together. Yeah. That that is the gospel, is yeah. the truth and grace. It's okay. both. Um, and then you just throw the counseling part in there. Man, I just need to throw you and put put my logo on you. It's like that's that's it. That's what I'm trying to <laughs> trying to accomplish by that name. That that is a that's wonderful, awesome. wonderful story. That's um, awesome. 
So I, I think we've, we connected, I can't remember the exact tweet, but it was something in the gender space. That That is the hot topic of the day. Um, I think it's going to be the cultural just issue that we're going to unfortunately look back um, as other generations look back and look at slavery, things like that. I think that's our generation slavery is just... I do too. I think it's our generation's lobotomies too. It, it, yes, yes. Um, so after your incredible story, and clearly their mental health can be more than just making you feel better. It is, it could be extremely powerful. Mm -hmm. What is wrong with mental health right now? And what can we do to fix it? Oh, gosh. Um, sorry, I thought my phone was off. Let me turn it off. Yeah, what's wrong with mental health right now? Um, it's not supporting health. What's wrong with <laughs> mental health right now? Um, so I'll answer a couple of things. Yeah, we connected on a tweet about the movement that is happening right now, the transgender moment, the transgender movement, whatever you want to call it. And... Again, this kind of, I don't want it to be too self-referential because I think these themes are universal, but it's self-referential in the sense that I lived this, okay? I know that for so many people in the church, in the faith, and who have left the faith, because I've done it, some gods need to be left. And if you believe in a God who loves you unconditionally, stick around. But if you believe in a God for whom you have to perform, if you believe and you were taught that God is punitive, condemning, um, scary, um, anything that inspires fear, that God needs to be left. And I needed to leave that God to find God. And the problem that I have with this ideology stems back from a conversation I had many years ago. And I was at a restaurant in Baltimore and Baltimore is the home of Johns Hopkins, and Johns Hopkins is the seat of gender transition surgeries. That's sort of where they started and the, the institution that's really promoted them, even though the head of the psychiatric department at Johns Hopkins believes that gender dysphoria is a mental disorder. But Johns Hopkins as an organization supports um, surgery for gender transitioning. And I sat next to someone at a dinner party who was a trans man, is a trans man. And I truly adore this person. This is a soul who is warm and instructive and strong. And I have a lot of respect for the research that they do. Uh, she does, because this was a biological female who transitioned to a man. Um, and I don't want to say any names because I'm not going to do that. But I'm sitting at a dinner party and I said, and, you know, I'm one of those people who can't small talk. I think it's a curse of a lot of therapists, but I can't small talk. And I'm also an Enneagram type four, if you know any about that, anything about that. So we live on a much deeper level and it's boring for us anywhere else. So I turned to Will, which is, um, you know, her adopted male name. And I don't know her female name. So I said to Will, um, can I ask you a question about transitioning? Yeah, yeah, totally so open, so willing to talk about it. And I said, just what, like, what happened? When did you know that you wanted to go from being a biological female to a male? And what came out of Will's mouth was, oh my God, I just hated my breasts and I hated my body. Like every time I looked in the mirror, I just hated myself and I hated my mother. And there's all of this hatred spewing out of Will's mouth. 
So fast forward to the current transgender moment. I don't believe, first of all, that good decisions about the self are based in self-hatred. I don't think we come to good conclusions based on any kind of self-hatred. I don't think we make good decisions from self-hatred. And yet, this is what I see in the transgender population at large, is a self-hatred until they transition. And then they believe that if they transition, they will be loved. And this leads me to the spiritual component. I do not believe that the love of God is conditional. That has not been my experience, nor is it my theological belief about the nature of a God who is love. That love is not conditional. So if God loves us unconditionally and we are to love ourselves the way God taught us to love, taught us what love is, our love for ourselves should be unconditional. And what that means is I don't have to take hormones and I don't have to transition to anything to love myself. So my view of the self is much more holistic. It's much more integrated that if there are areas of self-hatred in the self, and we all have them from time to time or permanently, you know, until we resolve them, um, those should be addressed psychotherapeutically. Those should be addressed with love in a therapist's office rather than on an operating table. I don't think a surgeon is the answer for self-hatred. That just doesn't make any sense to me at all because I know what it is to hate yourself. Now, I've never had you know, body dysmorphia to the point where I've wanted to do anything drastic to change my body. That's not been my journey, but I know what it's like to hate yourself so deeply that you want to take your own life. I know that place. I've been in that place. And I also know that the antidote to that is not in a pill, nor is it on an operating table, nor is it a synthetic hormone. It is in learning how to love yourself. And Christians really don't do this very well, to be honest. Um, I know a lot of Christians, most of them, who, who can be very self-loathing. It's sort of like, have you encountered the unconditional love of God if you hate yourself that much? you know? And so I'm working with Christians. I'm working with people who do not identify or believe the tenets of the Christian faith. I'm working with anyone toward self-love toward a healthy, robust love of the self, the knowledge of the self, the ability to be compassionate with the self. This is the will of God for us, that we would not live in self-loathing. There's nothing of God in that. And so when I look at the transgender community, that's really the issue I see is I don't believe anything should come from self-loathing. Also, and I'll just say this about it, what mother gives birth to a baby and holds the baby in their arms and says, you are so perfect. You are perfect in every way. You are perfect just as you are, unless you were born in the wrong body. And then we're going to give you hormones for the rest of your life and cut off perfectly healthy body parts. Like, how is that love? It's, it's none, not. None of that makes sense to me. And log that's the spiritual issue. Logically, I've got real issues with this as well. And this has to do more with like a psychological construct, because my question as a therapist is, if you believe you are the other gender, what part of you believes that? What part of the psyche is gendered? And if you are, let's say, born a female, assigned female at birth, right? We would say, however they the acronyms now are driving me crazy, but I can't keep biological right. female, but you believe you're a male. You are a biological female. Otherwise you wouldn't need to transition. Okay. So let's establish that, that you are transitioning from one to the other, which means you are the one first before the other. Let's just assume you could transition. If you are not the thing, 
you want to transition to, how do you know what it feels like to be that thing? Aren't you then just imagining what it's like to be a man or imagining what it's like to be a woman because you are not one. And if you were one, you wouldn't need to transition. Like the logic doesn't work for me. No, no. So all of those things together. Now I'm coming at this, not from a place of judgment. I'm coming at this from a place of compassion because being in confusion is very painful. It's painful. And so when I'm working with a client and I have who identifies as trans, I'm trying to understand like what part of you identifies this way. And also what do you imagine it's like to be the other gender? What would that do for you? What do you imagine? What part of you would be expressed if you were a male and you're a biological female, or if you're a female and you're a biological male, and then we might work on holding both the masculine and feminine within the self without needing to codify our entire identity around masculine or feminine. Because if you look at trans people, they are very typically the stereotypical embodiment of gender. Yes. They're sort of becoming a stereotype. And I'm like, can you hold, for example, if you're a biological female, the masculine traits within yourself and express them? I mean, I am a very feminine woman today, but I've been known to throw on a pair of biker boots and I can be extremely masculine in my personality. I can be decisive. I can be directive. I can be downright bossy. I'm very self-contained. I'm a leader. I mean, I've got all these masculine traits. I've also got a lot of feminine traits. So can we hold both? Which I believe is like God. God is the mother who wants to pull her chicks, right? To herself. Jesus says this. And then also the father who is the teacher and the guide and the protector. God contains what we call masculine and feminine traits, but that's because all of that exists in God alone. All of that in perfect harmony and balance, the nurturing and the strength, the compassion and the decisiveness, like all of that is part of the character of God. And so being created in God's image, of course I hold both. Of course you hold both. And we can hold both consciously without believing we have to be a male or a female to represent that. Yes. And (laughs) I think it's, it's excellent that you have approached this in different perspectives, because I think we're more quick when we see the, the loves of TikTok video or whatever that pops up of hitting the logic, which I think it's pretty quick to point out the logic not that that's invalid to point out i think it's important but i have got two well i've got two little ones and another one on the way uh, i've got uh, a three-year-old girl congratulations and a, uh, thank you and a one and a half year old boy and then another boy that will be uh born august or september and not that you have to have two of each gender to or one of each gender to know the differences but very clear which one's the girl which one's the boy it, it's not you know, it's really not complicated. Um, but going from that in the therapeutic angle, kind of that psychological angle, that's really important because I can sit there if I have a client and say, no, you're a boy. <laughs> like I can do that. But if they truly believe, if he truly believes he's a girl, then me just saying, hey, you're a boy, that's not going to do anything. That No, it's not. And I don't think specifically for therapists, I don't think it's our job to tell people who they are. Um, I think it's our job to get the obstacles out of the way. Mm -hmm. And 
for me. I mean, that's just how I how I practice. And so one of the ways that I think we can work with gender dysphoria um, is to validate the pain yes. that our clients are in. And then also at the same time, like we can hold the validation of pain in one hand, but we also have to hold rational thought in the other. Yes. And one of the things that I share with clients who present with gender dysphoria and I've worked with them is you're going to need your rational mind for a lot of decisions in your life. Like you're going to need your rational mind to buy a car. You're going to need your rational mind to choose a career, to, to work. Like you need a rational, critical thinking brain for a lot of decisions in life. And so often what we're in, in gender dysphoria is full on emotional reasoning, which is I feel, therefore it is. And that's dangerous because- yes. Your emotions are important. I just did a podcast on this myself. Your emotions are important, but they do not dictate truth. They dictate or they reveal how you're responding to your environment, but they do not dictate truth. And so we have to be able to maintain, and this is outside of, I think, a religious sphere, a critically thinking mind. Like that's really important. You have to be able to think critically to live life. You know, you, you know that emotionally reasoned all the time. Yes, there's a, there's a couple that go tos uh, as therapists. I think we all have some of those go tos that we use with with a lot of clients. That one, um, I, I really approach approach most things from a CBT type of perspective, not fully, but um, instead of going too in depth with every patient, I I give them a quick course of is it true and is it helpful. That that's kind of my my quick negative thought way to get around sure. that because if it's not both of those, then that's probably not a thought we need to keep in our head but yeah. the true part is important i can say hey i'm the best cook in the world but if i'm awful then it's not true that's yeah. not helpful we have to have the true component that other go-to i go with is your emotions are a tool they are they're important you better not ignore them but they are a tool and sometimes that tool is not the right tool for the right job and if i feel that, man, I just look ugly. I'm the worst. It's terrible. I can feel that. But in all actuality, I might be looking great that day. And, and I could have people point that out to me. And just because my initial feeling felt that way doesn't mean that it was true. My, my feelings can yeah. be off. Yeah. And I like CBT. And then what I don't like about CBT is that it doesn't go deep enough for me. I'm much more psychodynamic in my understanding sure. and it's existential. And so what I will work with is, okay, you know, let's get into the philosophy of identity. How do you know something is true? Like, what is your process of sussing out what is true about yourself and what is not? And let's make sure that that process is sound so that you can apply that across your life. Because there's going to be a lot of influences in our lives and a lot of voices that we encounter along the road of life that are going to, for their own ambition or whatever agenda they have, tell us who we are. And our ability to have a process in mind and in our hearts that we can go to every time is extremely important. And if the process is, I feel it, therefore it is, that is only one stream of information. The streams of information about our lives are our feelings, for sure, our thoughts, our gut, our spirituality, and other people's responses to us. Very often other people get it wrong. 
But we need an internal process within ourselves that's not just reliant on the emotional. That is but one stream of income. One stream yes. of income. One stream well, of information I, about I, this. I I also use kind of an economic type of uh, model too. So that does kind yeah, of Yeah, let's kind go of with the metaphor, there. right? <laughs> Great. I, I this is this is wonderful, wonderful information. And I'm so glad I was talking to uh to another therapist here recently of uh just when you when somebody speaks out against the narrative, um, it it's just so invigorating because we live often in a constant gaslighting that if you mm-hmm. don't go with the, the kind of current gender ideology and everything, you're the only one person that feels that way. Everyone else is in their own little world and um, you're the only therapist that thinks that way. It's mm-hmm. not true. Mm-hmm. And having the courage to to speak out and, and to share these things it's so it's so invigorating i think that's why mm-hmm. we connected because mm-hmm. you you just love seeing that and and knowing that there is there's still hope there's not mental health field hasn't totally been taken over there's still independent voices out there um we, we just got to continue continue speaking up yeah i think so um I wish the field were doing its job and its job is to help people understand themselves and what we're doing with a culture of affirming is we're missing a lot of really important markers. Was there trauma? Are they in an invalidating home environment? That's hugely important because what do we do when we're in an invalidating home in part, you know, if we're talking about, you know, Lisa Littman's um, research, rapid onset gender dysphoria, it's mostly teenage girls. They're mostly Caucasian teenage girls. That's yeah. the largest demographic. But if if we're looking at the home environment, what are we seeing there? Because, and I know this to be true, when the home environment is not validating and it's not safe, we will seek community and belonging somewhere because we yes. need it. Those are human needs. And, you know, you're talking to someone who joined a cult and didn't know it. So I know what it's like to trade in freedom for belonging. And I think in this moment, we need to be asking that question instead of just affirming and sending people for hormones and surgery. Let's just stop and go, wait a minute. Why don't you tell me everything that's going on in your life right now? And when were you first introduced to this ideology and how was it framed? Because very often it's framed as the answer to your pain. And Again, as a therapist who I don't believe it's my job to tell people who they are, I would, I would again, keep exploring that. Well, how do you think that this might take away your pain? How is your gender connected to the fact that you were sexually abused? Or how is your, I mean, and this could lead to some very important discoveries like, well, maybe if I'm a male, I won't be as susceptible. I mean, that's a very important discovery to get, but we don't get there because Unfortunately, our field is two inches deep right now. We're not doing the deep work. Like we should be exploring this. We should be understanding this on deeper levels. And instead we're like, oh, you say you're that? Great, you're that. Go get hormones. Game over. It's over. Yeah. That's not therapy. That's not psychotherapy. Psychotherapy digs in. Psychotherapy asks questions. Psychotherapy makes us uncomfortable and makes us face ourselves and face what we believe and what we think. And that as a therapist is my job. And so I trust the process. I'm not going to sit and look at a client and say, well, you're a male or you're a female. That's not my job. But my job is 
tell me more about what you believe a female is. Yep. Tell me more yep. about what you believe a male is. And I trust the process, whatever yep. process, you know, is helping someone get to the core, the root of what they believe and why they believe it. That's a process I trust. Absolutely. I, I, I think that's wonderful. And we need to continue to, to be sharing that with other therapists. Cause yeah, just saying, yep, nope, you're good. Oh, he abused you. Nope. Nope. That's so that's cool. We're good. Like, no, well, we don't and, do that. And I think a lot of therapists are like, you know, trans is the new gay. Yeah. And I don't believe it is. Um, being gay, being homosexual does not require that you undergo surgery and it does not require that you transform like your core identity. Like there's nothing that's happening in the homosexual population typically on like a cellular level. Whereas in the trans population, like there, this is a completely different set of identity standards. And so we're not talking about homosexuality today, but I think a lot of the reason why so many therapists have jumped on this wagon is because, oh, this is the new gay we need to support. I'm like, this is different. This is not the new gay. This is a very different presentation. It is. Sexual attraction is is autonomic. It's not a choice. It's autonomic. You know, you get a rush of blood in the presence of one thing or another. Okay. I'm not going to get detailed on it because it's, you know, for your audience, but like, that's a fact. Okay. (laughs) This is not that this has to do with self-concept. Sure. This has to do with self-identity. And that is a very different set of questions. Absolutely. It's not. Absolutely. Well, I, I think this has been a, an extremely wonderful uh, conversation. Where where can people find you, find your work, find your information yeah. to, to so learn, learn I more have about you? My own podcast, Johnny, it's called Vanessa Landino Podcast. Um, it's my name. So you can find me everywhere that you listen to a podcast. Um, my website, vanessalandino.com. I wrote a book that I put out last year called The Toolbox, The Tools We Need to Build Relationships and Repair Them When They Break. And the last weekend of March, if any of your listeners are in Nashville, I am hosting a workshop on my book called The Toolbox Workshop, and I'm going to be teaching it for two days. I'm teaching my own book um, so they can sign up for that on my website, which is vanessalandino.com. Wonderful. Well, I'll, I'll include all those links down in the description. Please look up her stuff. I'll, even, I'll include a link to the book and everything, the workshop. And yeah, um, it's right. been great having you on and uh, wish you the best and keep doing great work. You too. Thank you. All right. The last word. Today's last word is prayer. Now, those of you that are listening that are Christian or are any type of spiritual belief, you understand the importance of prayer. Prayer is a way that we can directly communicate with God. And, and if you break it down and think about that, how incredible is that you get to communicate with the creator of the universe. That it, It's incredible. And prayer is something that I think because so many of us are so used to it, it doesn't really sink in how incredible, how awesome. Awesome is one of those words we throw around all the time. I, I, I'm guilty of it, uh, of just something cool, but awesome, like incomprehensible, incredible that we get to communicate with the creator. That That is incredible. I mentioned earlier in the water cooler of that recent book that I read, uh, Praying the Bible. And 
I'm discussing prayer again in, in the last word segment because of how important prayer is for the Christian life. I know oftentimes we think of prayer in a way that it, if you go to church, it, somebody goes up to to pray for the offering, or it it's really just segue. It's after we get done singing in church. It's after the after the preaching. Yeah, it's really just a holy segue, and. In our personal lives, it tends to just be very focused on what's going wrong, um, the, the the elements of life. For me right now, I know I've mentioned this in other podcasts, pray often for, for my wife. She's she's sick right now, and it's it's difficult for her. It's difficult for the whole family. And don't misinterpret me. I think praying for elements, praying for things that are going wrong in your life is important. That's why it goes back to the Psalms, though, of getting the full gamut of what we need to be praying for. Yes, ailment. Yes, crying out in despair. Crying out if you're dealing with depression, of lamenting, God, why is this happening to me? That's in the Psalms. We need to learn how to lament, how to pray for things that are difficult in your life. Yes, that is huge in your prayer life, but that's not it. In your prayer life is also Thanksgiving. Boy, how thankful are you that things are going well in your life, that you have a roof over your head? I know, know for me right now, going back with my wife, as much as I might lament, man, this, this is rough. It's rough seeing her deal with the sickness during the pregnancy. We are joyful that we have another little boy coming into our life. You need to have both the joy and the lament, both of those. And everything in between is part of that prayer life. That's why I go back to let the scriptures, let them guide your prayer life. Sometimes we can become very arrogant in our own understanding. And again, I'm not just pointing at you. I'm pointing at myself here. If you think that you've got your prayer life or or your spiritual life is better off than King David, then you might want to reevaluate yourself. So think for a moment if you're like, okay, I got to be super spiritual all the time with my prayer, and maybe I don't know how to lament. I'm all about being happy. If you think about that, that goes back to the the to the last word I talked about in the, the last pod, podcast of humility. That's a very arrogant thing to think that my problems are so big that I don't need to talk to the creator of the universe, talking to my savior that have cleansed my sins away. I don't need to bring that to him. He, he can't handle that. You may not be uttering those words or thinking those exact words, but that's the logical conclusion there. The Psalms are filled with just gut-wrenching, horrible moments. God can handle it. Don't be so prideful that you don't feel that God can handle your concerns. He can, I promise you. Don't feel that you throwing stuff out there and not knowing the exact right word choices should stop you from prayer. No, but that's why, again, I emphasize using the Psalms. It has great biblical language. It teaches you how to lament in a biblical way. God is not mad at you for throwing concerns his way. He wants you to. That's why he gifted us his holy word. Use it. Use prayer 
or use the scripture to guide to inform your prayer life. I cannot emphasize enough of how much that this can change your life, not just your your prayer life, obviously, but I'm a counselor. That can impact your mental well-being. So often we look at at depression, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not making a, a lightheartedness. Depression is is an evil, and it has a very negative effect on many, many people. Don't don't mis- misunderstand me on that. However, there are many people that that depression is a sense of just spiritual, just for lack of a better word, spiritual constipation. You, you're not doing anything. Um, you, you're stuck. And that stagnation of your spiritual life, of your prayer life, maybe you're not going to church, you're not in, in scripture, I'm not saying 100%, that's why depression happens, but it can be a big chunk. If life is just all about a physical matter, you, you're born and then you die and then that's it, yeah, you're going to be depressed at some point because what's the purpose? That's really where depression sinks in is a, is a feeling of hopelessness, of worthlessness. You have worth, but it's not because of your actions. It's because of your creation and who created you. And what better way to reemphasize that than to be active in the word, active in a local body, and active in your prayer life. I urge you, get started today, right now. Pause this video, turn it off, read Psalm 1. Let that guide your prayer life and let me know what difference that it's made. Thanks again for joining me on this latest episode of the Truth and Grace Counseling Podcast. If you want to help support the show, again, please visit truthgracecounselingpodcast.com. You are welcome to buy some merch or go onto the good stuff section like, oh, there went prayer in the Bible, <laughs> but uh, where you can find books like uh, the Babylon Bee Guide to Democracy. Um, and there, there's also a donate button there as well. So feel free to go to those sections of the website to help support financially. But again, if you don't want to support financially, like, share, comment, subscribe, all those little things. They really, really, really do um, help spread the show. Feel free to check out Vanessa's content in her book. I've got that listed down in the description below. And also, um, I I haven't mentioned this in the last couple podcasts, but I've got that show uh, feedback form. just a little Google form down there. If you have any feedback or have any guests, things like that, that you would like to have on the show, please feel free to uh, give that a look as well. All right. I wish you the best and I'll see you next episode.